You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. I'm going to begin by rereading the first part of our James reading for today. So we're in James chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Thus begins the final chapter of James with vivid imagery of judgment. We've been preaching through the book of James over the last nine weeks now, and throughout that time we have seen how James is continually calling us to live a life of faith. And these words of judgment are actually really important to that call. They're a necessary part of living a life of faith. They are spoken to the wealthy of the world, who have amassed their riches at the expense of the poor. It is an all-too-common story, both in James' day and our own. If we look down at verse 4, it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So it looks like the specific situation that James is looking at are people who are wealthy landowners, who have hired people for day labor on their fields and then are not properly paying them. And these people were um, people who were living day to day. They needed to get the money for that day to be able to support their family for that day. And the Old Testament law doesn't just say that they need to be paid. It says specifically that they need to be paid each day. You can't like hold back and wait till the end of the week because they may not be able to make it to the end of the week. In our own day, there's the same story happens, it particularly is among those who are migrant workers, those who are in our country or other countries, whether they're illegal or, or um, here with, with work visas, that are afraid to speak up against their employers for fear that something might happen, that they might be sent away, that their source of income might go away. But there are so many more people who are vulnerable, who are in that position of depending upon their paycheck each week, who do not have a voice and are therefore subject to injustice. We could tell story after story. We have probably all heard stories about how Amazon has sometimes terrible working conditions and metrics that they use to make sure that everybody's working incredibly hard all the time. And this is all done at the expense of those people who are disposable, according to the company, that can be let go if they need to be, um, while, of course, Jeff Bezos amasses unfathomable personal wealth. Or we could tell the story of Facebook, which was in the news with a whistleblower in Congress talking about how they know from internal documents that their products, like Instagram, breed addiction among teenagers and that they are specifically causing body image issues among teenagers and they have documentation that proves and shows how this is happening and yet consistently when this data comes up before them the company has chosen profits over people and has chosen not to disrupt the methods and cycles in which this this happens because they actually want people to be coming back and stuck on their products. 
or we could look at any number of companies that have sent their, uh, their labor overseas, neglecting the local communities that make their industry possible, and really oftentimes doing so because they can get their cost savings by looking the other way when people in foreign countries are treated with working conditions that would be just completely unsustainable and illegal here in the United States. And so they take advantage of the poor, maybe even tell themselves, hey, at least I'm giving them a job, but they do so in a way that is really just exploiting those who are vulnerable to be able to amass great wealth. And we don't even need to look at these big, giant social um, issues here. Uh, I've, there was a period of time where Liz was working at a retail establishment, and so I saw firsthand that they oftentimes just hire a whole bunch of part-time employees so they don't have to give anybody benefits and they give everybody hours that they don't know what they're going to get. They, they can't say no because they need the income, but they can't actually make enough to support themselves and live on either. Over and over again, we see people and companies and, and even governments choosing to exploit the poor for the sake of profit. And each of these stories, when they pile up, makes a life of faith a little bit more difficult to live. It makes it a little bit more difficult to believe in a God who is good, a God who cares about the poor. When we see the pile of injustice that is done, we cry out along with the saints, How long, O Lord, how long? How long will this go on? The wicked prosper it can make us question whether a life of faith is even really worth it. Because most of us want to live in a world where the righteous, the good, are rewarded, where the evil get their due. And sometimes we hold out some sort of hope that that's going to happen. But when we look at the world, we find out that at least in the short term, where short term can mean the entire duration of a human life, it often isn't true. Cheaters do prosper. Liars rise to key positions in government. People who don't care about others tend to get ahead in business. Evil men and women often die fat and happy. And so these words of judgment that James speaks are very important to the good news of the gospel. Because they remind us that death is not the end of the story, both for our own lives, those who are suffering, but also for those who are doing evil in this day and age. Every one of us must one day face the judge. And before him, those who have amassed great wealth during their time on earth will find that their wealth is worthless. It can't buy off this particular judge. In fact, it's worse than worthless. This image that James gives uh, is a, a wealth that is corrupting, rusting, falling apart in a way that the corruption itself speaks to their decision to invest in the temporary things of this earth instead of the things that last, the treasures of heaven that endure. And James uses this imagery about gold, which even in the ancient world, of course, they knew that gold was not something that rusted, not something that corrupted. It's the thing that they would hold up as the sign that wealth endures, that it lasts from age to age. And instead he says, no, even that too will pass away before the final judgment. It will do you no good in the last, in the last day. 
all it will do is add its voice to those whom you have defrauded as you stand before the Lord of hosts and face judgment. And too often, we in the church, in our particular culture, can think of judgment as a topic to be avoided, a topic to maybe wait until you've already got people coming to church and believing in Jesus. We want to talk about salvation, about, about the good parts of, of being saved, and we want to avoid the talk of judgment, in part because we've seen that it can be abused at times. There are those who use the talk of judgment to condemn all that they, whom, with whom they disagree and who use it as just a way to inflict pain, or those who use it simply as a means of fear to try to get people to be scared into behaving. But when we delay the talk of judgment, when we somehow try to separate it from the good news, our good news ends up not being very good at all. I've had conversations with people recently where we've talked about how judgment has come back in vogue in some ways in our world. People want to be able to talk about who is in and who is out, who is righteous and who is not. And the truth is, is that if we can't speak about the good news of God's judgment, of the merciful and compassionate but also just God, who will, do, will one day vindicate the righteous, who will raise up the poor and the oppressed, who will tear down the mighty who seem to reign and rule over us, then we have missed the good news altogether. We cannot speak even of the cross, without talking about the judgment of God. The cross has become a sign of hope for us exactly because this is a place where Jesus faced the judgment of God and he was vindicated as the righteous one. So this symbol of death has instead become a symbol of hope. But that's not true unless God is a just judge, unless God is the one who vindicates and proves the righteous. We need to be able to speak of and think of the judgment of God as part of the good news of the gospel. But it's not just a philosophical position that we're taking. We're not just talking about ju the judgment of God in an abstract way. The gospel always demands that we ask ourselves, then what? So how shall we live in response to this truth? If the judgment of God is good news, if the judgment of God is coming, how do we live now? First, we can be aware that our own wealth, too, may cry out to the judge. I doubt that anyone in this room is directly exploiting the poor and perhaps putting people in poor working conditions or paying people unfairly. Though if you are, repent, turn away. The judge, you will face the judge and, and you will have to cry out. The poor will cry out for that. But all of us take part in economic systems that are part of that exploitation. Unlike the first, country, the first uh, century, we actually have a lot of say in how we participate in those systems. We have a lot of choice. And so when we make our purchasing decisions and our investments exclusively based on the bottom line, how we can save the most money, we're participating in that cycle of exploiting the poor. While we can't extract ourselves from that entirely, and we can certainly also get stuck in sort of an analysis paralysis where you spend so much time on every single decision about what to buy that you're, you're de you can't get through your day. There are things that we can do when we know that we are 
giving money to an exploitive company, we can choose instead to extract ourselves from that and do the best that we can to make purchases that are ethical, even if it means we have a little bit less money to put into our savings accounts. We can try to make investments that actually pay attention to the ethics of the companies that we're investing in, if you have money to invest. Probably most importantly, we can avoid being caught up in the consumeristic mindset of our culture, that we need more stuff all the time, that the cycle that we're supposed to get on is to buy, buy, buy. And as we approach the holiday seasons, of course, the pressure to participate in that is going to be even more intense, that we need stuff, we need to buy things, and we need to do it in a way that we can get value and make sure that we can get something for everybody, which means buying stuff where people were exploited to produce it. But we can step away from this and instead say no. We have that option to make that choice in our, with our money. We can use the in, what influence we have as those who, as by the world standards, are wealthy. All of us in this room. And we can use what influence we have to work for justice. And then... When sometimes we're the ones who find ourselves on the receiving end of exploitation, on the receiving end of systems that seem to somehow always lift up the, poor, the rich at the expense of the poor, we can choose to suffer well. The message of the gospel is never that we can avoid suffering. We stand before a cross each week that reminds us that the path that God calls us is one that goes through suffering. But we can have some choice with God's help over how we suffer. What we do in response to the suffering that we have. And James doesn't point us towards the solutions that our society and culture would point us to. There are some in our society who, who rise up in anger in a way that just they want to tear down the rich and the wealthy through revolution. They want to find ways and put systems of government in that are, are just going to try to distribute everything to everybody in exactly the same way. And while some forms of trying to distribute wealth are not bad, the, they're never going to be successful. We can't actually get rid of these systems. These same systems that existed in the first century, that exist now in the 21st century, are going to be here and exist. And if we think that our salvation is going to come through having the right economic system in place, we are sorely deluded and we misunderstand the, the depth of human sin and the way that it has distorted the world and all of its use of money. But neither does James point us towards nihilism, a sort of giving up and saying, well, since we can't change it, we might as well just let it happen to us. Just sort of enter into a state of depression or, or a, a state of eternal just sorrow um, that, that doesn't allow for any room for joy at the state of the world and what's happening. There's a different way that James points us to, a way that depends upon us living that life of faith where we have a radical dependence upon God, where we put our trust in Him. And He points us towards patient endurance. Not necessarily something that's super popular in our culture as a whole. He says we can identify with the poor in a way that we enter into that suffering. We can be the poor in a way that we enter into that suffering, but not in a way that takes away our hope.
not in a way that ultimately leaves us with despair, but one that remembers that we serve the God who is the judge. This is the basis upon which James gives his instructions to patient suffering. If we look at verses 7 and 8, it says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It goes on to say, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. It is exactly the knowledge of God's coming judgment that allows us to stand up underneath injustice without despair. Because even when we are suffering, we know that one day things will be set right. This has always been the cry and the hope of God's people. It was present in our psalm reading today. Psalm 149, where it said, Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. And verses in Psalms like that, if we don't understand it, looking through the lens of God as the one who is the ultimate judge, seem like they're just bloodthirsty and, and hungry for a vengeance that we take upon ourselves. But this is vengeance done in the name of the Lord, in which the people of the Lord, the holy ones, participate in the judgment of the nations. And it is only good news when it is done patiently, waiting for the Lord's timing, waiting for the Lord's judgment, when we don't try to pick up that sword and take it into our own hands, because we'll find ourselves to be unjust, to be falling short when we do that. But in the Lord's timing, the judgment of the nations is good news. And it allows us to endure the suffering that we encounter with patience. But we need to not confuse patience with just passivity. The example that James uses when he talks about patience, besides the image of the farmer waiting for the crops, who is not lazy from the time that he plants the crops until the time that they come. He's working that whole time. But the other example that he uses that gives a key understanding of what patience looks like is the example of the prophets. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The prophets, if you've read the prophets, stood up for injustice all the time. And in choosing to stand up against injustice, not, not for injustice, they stood up against injustice. Um, but in choosing to stand against injustice, they oftentimes found themselves on the receiving end of suffering. People who, the, the false prophets, would speak words to the king and to those in power that they wanted to hear and would be sometimes given cushy positions, rising to positions of prominence and influence. And instead, the prophets of the Lord would speak the Lord's truth, oftentimes meaning that they had to run away and hide. Think about Elisha and his 
or Elijah and his, his encounters with Ahab and Jezebel. Over and over again, the kings tried to hunt down the prophets of God because they would not let them hear what they wanted to hear because they spoke the word of the Lord, they spoke the truth. And in doing so, they became those who were suffering. It wasn't just something that was thrust upon them with no choice. They chose their faithfulness to the Lord in a way that had them identify with those who were suffering and entered into suffering out of the willingness to speak the truth and to identify as those who followed the Lord. And that oftentimes is the call that is given to us. The patience that we have is not just a patience that removes ourselves from the systems of the world. It's one that allows us to speak truth against the injustice of the world, even when it brings suffering upon us. Even when we are persecuted for being unwilling to go along with the systems of the world, when we're mocked for pointing out the flaws of, of our society and culture when we refuse to get caught up in the idea that we can just have some sort of temporal victory that gives us a cushy life, because it's not happening. We are waiting for the patience of the Lord for His day of judgment. This is what it looks like to walk in a life of faith in a world in which there are those who are suffering we have the courage to take up the voice and the truth of God, to speak against the systems of injustice, to engage in our society in a way that may not be as profitable to us as others. But we choose poverty sometimes. We choose to speak truth. We choose to, to walk among and with those who are poor and exploited, those who are vulnerable, to care for the widows and the orphans, for the migrants, for those in countries that don't have the wealth that ours do, in a way that costs us because we have trust in God. We know, as the prophets did, that on our own we cannot change the world. We can't make it better. We can't bring about the salvation of God. But we also know that the salvation is coming, that judgment is coming, that vindication is coming. And so we can choose to suffer because we trust in the character of God. Because we know that one day that choice will be vindicated. One day we will be raised up. One day we'll walk in a city with streets of gold. Not gold that is corrupt because it carries with it the blood of the poor. But, blood, but gold that is pure. Gold that is beautiful because it has been purified in the fires of God. Then since we're preaching straight through the book and I don't get to leave off verses that are hard, we come to this little odd verse at the end of this passage. Um, chapter 5, verse 12, where it says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Again, this is one of those places where we can look at this verse and just feel like, okay, James likes to throw in Proverbs here and there that have nothing to do with what he just wrote. 
But that phrase, above all, why is he calling them to integrity of speech, of not swearing, not making oaths? He's not talking about using curse words. He's talking about making oaths and promises. And I believe that where this ties into what we were just talking about is that there's this, there are times where we think that we can have a sort of false sense of power by making promises to God that will manipulate him and bring about his judgment early. Or we can make false promises to the world in a way that are going to, to allow us to perhaps participate in the systems in a little bit more favorable way to us. And instead, James is calling us again to this life of integrity, this life of commitment to trusting in God in such a way that our words are not needing to have oaths to be believed, but that our yes is yes, our no is no, and our commitment is to God, that our commitment is to the one who judges, that our cries go out to him, that we're not trying to manipulate the world around us with promises, that we are entering into a system of control in which we really don't have that control. And instead, we are walking in our utter dependence and faith. We're here on a day where we're remembering All Saints Day because tomorrow is All Saints Day. And this is the testimony of the saints that many of them have to us. They walked in faith, even choosing suffering, even choosing to identify with the poor, choosing not to compromise their faith, but instead to walk with integrity with God, trusting in His ways to show us that such a way is possible, to remind us that it is those who are faithful those who endure patiently, who are vindicated before God, with whom we join in singing praise to the Lamb, who is both our sacrifice and our judge. So as we come together and gather in the prayers of the people, and as we enter into that time of communion, remember that the judgment of God is good news for God's people. And that it's because He is the judge that we can endure whatever path He sets before us. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.